Hello, and welcome to part 17 of my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley, and I'm a professor in the Department of Biology and Marine Biology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, where I've been teaching an undergraduate class titled Antarctic Ecology, Geology, History, and Policy. In this podcast, I have distilled this class down into numerous parts that cover all these topics about Antarctica. Part 17, presented here, is on anthropogenic impacts, mainly from research stations, tourism, and introduced species. In my last podcast on research stations, I mentioned some of the impacts these stations have had on the Antarctic environment, especially in the early years before the environmental protocol of the Antarctic Treaty was ratified. These impacts include waste disposal on land and in the sea, and outdoor burning of waste, plus the overall carbon footprint in building a station in Antarctica. We can also add fuel spills to this list, as this also was a problem early on when helicopters and small planes were associated with the stations. Thanks to the environmental protocol in 1991, there are now protections and procedures to minimize and avoid these types of disturbances. Besides pollution from research stations, there are external impacts occurring in Antarctica as well. Loss of ozone and the formation of the ozone hole above Antarctica is largely due to the use of CFCs in the 1970s and 80s that drifted into the atmosphere and made their way to polar regions. Long-distance transport of pollutants such as DDT and mercury also occurs through the atmosphere, some of which eventually deposits in Antarctica. DDT has even been documented in Adelie penguins. Plastic waste also is finding its way into the Southern Ocean and into the wildlife that exists there. These impacts are currently under investigation by researchers working in the Antarctic Peninsula, the Ross Sea, and East Antarctica. I have not addressed tourism yet in Antarctica, and I want to begin with a brief history of this activity there. It actually dates back to 1910, when Robert Falcon Scott was just leaving on his Terra Nova expedition. The Thomas Cook Agency in London advertised a tourist expedition as well, but it was canceled after Scott's tragic death on the way back from the Pole. In the 1920s, a Falkland Islands mail ship started bringing paying passengers to whaling stations in the South Shetland and South Orkney Islands as part of their delivery route. These passengers then were the first true tourists to visit Antarctica. In 1930, the New York Times advertised a 140-day luxury cruise to Antarctica, but that's a long time for someone to be away on a trip, and it never succeeded. In 1931, the first women to visit Antarctica traveled on a resupply vessel to East Antarctica to the whaling fleet there. One, Ingrid Christensen, was the wife of a Norwegian whaler who was captain of the ship she was on, while the other, Matilda Vager, was her friend traveling with her. They never made landfall on that trip, but Ingrid and Matilda were the first women to see the continent. Four years later, Ingrid was on the ship again, and this time, in 1935, she and her husband did step foot on the continent. Now there is an Ingrid Christensen coast named in her honor. Air tourism in Antarctica began in 1956, when Chile completed the first tourist flight over the South Shetland Islands with 66 passengers. The following year, a Pan American flight from New Zealand landed at McMurdo Station, the first commercial flight to land in Antarctica. This also was the beginning of the International Geophysical Year. Air tourism really picked up by the late 1970s, when Qantas and Air New Zealand began summer tourist flights over Antarctica. Up to 17 flights were made in 1978 to 1979, and in 1979 member nations of the Antarctic Treaty met and expressed concerns about this air tourism 
as there was no air traffic control or search and rescue possible for these flights if anything went wrong. Then, that same year, an Air New Zealand flight tragically crashed into the side of Mount Erebus, killing all 257 on board. This accident effectively ended air tourism until 1994, when Qantas started flights again that continue today. Ship-based tourism also has been increasing since the 1970s. The first company to do this in Antarctica was founded by Lars Erik Lindblad using the vessel Lindblad Explorer, starting in 1969. Voyaging primarily to the South Shetland Islands and the Antarctic Peninsula, this ship made every effort to visit new places each year, but it went aground in 1972 and again in 1979, requiring passenger rescues by Chilean and Argentinian naval vessels. In 1989, an Argentinian resupply vessel in the peninsula, the Bahia Paraiso, with some tourists on board, hit rocks and sank near Palmer Station, Anvers Island, spilling 170,000 gallons of oil and damaging the local marine environment. The Lindblad Explorer continued its operations in Antarctica into the 1990s. In 1990 to 91, there were 1,055 tourists that visited Antarctica. More companies and ships have begun similar operations, and in 1991, the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, or IATO, was founded to, quote, advocate and promote the practice of safe and environmentally responsible private sector travel to the Antarctic, unquote. Over 100 tour companies agreed on protocols to protect Antarctica, to stay in line with Antarctic Treaty guidelines. They didn't want tourism to get a bad name there. They also agreed to share data on ship routes and stops to avoid being in the same place at the same time, spoiling the visit for passengers. They limited their visits to specific sensitive areas to prevent unnecessary disturbances to wildlife. In 2015, they banned the use of drones by passengers, and today these ships provide lectures on Antarctic ecology, geology, and history, plus ensure that passengers do not inadvertently introduce seeds or insects from their outdoor gear including their hiking boots that they brought with them. All these measures have helped a great deal in minimizing the impact of tourism in Antarctica. In 2007, though, the, the Explorer, the ship I sailed and lectured on many times in the 1990s to 2000, hit an iceberg and sank near King George Island in the Antarctic Peninsula. No lives were lost and all passengers were rescued thanks to the nearby presence of other tour ships, but the potential for worse disasters remains. Still, ship-based tourism has increased exponentially since then, and the Otto website keeps track of this. In the 2013-14 season, there were 37,405 passengers that visited Antarctica. Six years later, in 2019-2020, there were 74,381. Then the pandemic hit and effectively ended tourism there for a year. There were no visitors in 2020-2021. But now tourism is back and increasing again. In 2021 to 22, there were 23,527 passengers, of which over half were from the U.S. No data are available yet for 2022-23, but it will likely be much higher. Thanks to the efforts of IATO, though, the impacts of this tourism have been minimal. Another concern that relates to both scientists visiting research stations as well as tourists landing at penguin colonies and other sites in Antarctica is the possibility of introducing exotic species that could become established in Antarctica and impact the local environment. Most introducing species to Antarctica fail to thrive there from the cold, harsh environment and they disappear. 
A few species, though, have gained a foothold and can now be considered invasive, especially in the Antarctic Peninsula, where the climate is becoming increasingly milder with climate warming. One new species is bluegrass, or the common grass on most lawns and golf courses. It was probably carried unknowingly as seed stuck on the bottom of hiking boots or in outdoor clothing and other gear. It was first seen growing near the Polish station on King George Island and has since been documented at three other stations in the western Antarctic Peninsula. So far, it has not been impacting the native species of grass and hopefully the bluegrass will be contained and eliminated. Two other vascular plants from South America, however, have invaded Deception Island, as well as two springtail species and are being closely monitored by scientists there. Some exotic species arrive in Antarctica on their own through natural dispersal. One is a marine species, the king crab, which has been documented moving by the thousands across the ocean bottom from the tip of South America towards the Antarctic Peninsula. The rich benthic fauna on the continental shelf in the peninsula is under threat by this crab if it's able to colonize the shelf. The native species have no predators and this crab could devastate that community. Part of the reason the king crab is only now invading the peninsula is thought to be related to warmer ocean temperatures that now allow this species to disperse farther south. Hopefully it will not make it onto the continental shelf. Thank you for listening to my podcast, All About Antarctica. I'm Dr. Steve Emsley of the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and I hope you tune in for Part 18, Marine Fisheries and Illegal Fishing.